Good to see everybody. Welcome. We're in the story of Luke, and uh, obviously last week we met in the Ogin Cinema for our big meeting together. Um, I was in Turkey. I understand I missed a, a brilliant week. This is sounding very booming. Is it okay to you? A bit loud? That's the people who want to sleep, clearly. There, that's better for you. Um, <clears throat> we're going to read uh, from Luke 19. It will come on the screen. What I want you to remember to help us get some of what's happening, this is right after the story from Zacchaeus. Jonathan preached on that. Uh, where Zacchaeus, the man who worked for Rome, uh, collecting taxes, Jesus had come to his house. Uh, and this story is linked to that. That's important to help us understand. And we do need to understand this one because for some reason I've got the next happy passage in Luke. You'll see what I mean as we read it. So, whilst they were still listening to this, the this is what happened with Zacchaeus and the conversation with him. Jesus went on to tell them a parallel, a parable. <coughs> because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Uh, The miner was like three months' salary, three months' wages. It was uh, an amount of money. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, then he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it (coughs) laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Why (coughs) then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. They replied, (coughs) he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. (coughs) But to the one who has nothing, even what they have (coughs) will be taken away. Here's the punchline. But for those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. There endeth today's reading. I had a similar one of these last time I was in Luke. What on earth is going on? What are we to take from this story? How much is it teaching us about Jesus? Why it seems to be saying that about a king who's going to inherit a kingdom, meanwhile he leaves people with investments to make. They say he's harsh, they don't want him to rule over them. Is this really about Jesus? What does it say to us? Well, let's start at the first few verses. Firstly, it says that Jesus tells this story because the people think that God's kingdom is about to come. Now, why are they thinking this? Thanks, Jonathan. Why are they thinking this? He's just 
been to the house of a tax collector, just told him salvation has come to your house. Zacchaeus is saying he will repay everything he has stolen and more. Why are they thinking, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, that the kingdom of God is going to come? Why is this such a problem? The problem primarily isn't about the kingdom coming. In fact, Jesus has said the kingdom is amongst you. What the problem is, is their expectation of that kingdom. As we've seen before, as we work through Luke, the Old Testament promises that God's king will come and establish God's rule, righteousness, justice instead of oppression, <coughs> healing instead of the sick, freedom for captives. That's what the Old Testament promises. In fact, Jesus himself, earlier in Luke, stands up and reads the prophecy from Isaiah talking about those things and says, today, this is fulfilled. However, for Jesus' audience, for the majority of the Israelites, and particularly some of the religious rulers, they thought that if the kingdom was coming, then Rome would be overthrown. They were understanding it to be a military kingdom and a political kingdom. And if Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is healing the sick, and Jesus is talking about freedom for captives, then maybe this is what's going to happen. They've just heard Jesus announce salvation has come to Zacchaeus. So Jesus stood outside the house, said to the crowd, today salvation has come to this son of Abraham. Interesting phrase. Salvation has come to this son of Israel. Jesus is saying salvation has come. And the story we're reading picks up when they heard this, as they were hearing this. Jesus is talking about salvation coming to a child of Abraham. So if Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham, is experiencing salvation, maybe salvation will come to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus has worked for Rome. Jesus has rescued him. So now Jesus will rescue Jerusalem from Rome. That's the connection. Does that make sense? That's what they're thinking. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus. It's not political. It's nothing to do with a palace. But I've rescued him. He was working for Rome, and I've delivered him from the clutches of Rome. Now he's going to Jerusalem. And they think, wow, maybe this is a sign. Because they've been looking for signs. They've asked Jesus for signs. If he's doing this for Zacchaeus, maybe he's now going to do this for all of us. But that isn't the nature of God's kingdom, as we've seen again and again. It's not political. It's not military. It's not come to reign in a palace. But the king has come to reign in the hearts of men and women. One day, political rulers, oppressive powers, injustice, military might, wars will be overthrown. But that's not this day. And do you remember when I was last preaching on a similar passage, or a passage with a similar theme from Luke 17? Jesus talks about the two days of the Son of Man and how there are two days. It's not this day that those things will be overthrown. That's not the nature of the kingdom. So to explain all of this again... Jesus tells the story. The purpose of the story is to try and get their attention on what's really going on. Why a story? Why can't Jesus just make, guys, listen, point one, this is who I am. Point two, this is what the promises say. Point three, etc. Why can't he? That's how we understand. We need to know that at that time and even today, stories were the main way of communicating. We're trained to think in points. We're trained to think, well, this, this, this equals this. That's why we find some of the passages in the Bible so confusing. Because we don't understand, because we haven't been taught that way, the literature, the type of literature. Stories were used to convey 
uh, to convey truth. Stories were used to convey what was going on. Stories were used to make a point. Often, stories would exaggerate things to help make that point. Stories would overstate things to get the audience's attention. You know this. When you're in a story, could be cinema, could be theatre, could be reading a book, you get drawn in if it's a good story. That's the power of stories. Yeah, we love the arguments. One, two, and three follows logic. That's how we're taught. But stories do something in your heart. Stories do something to your emotions. So Jesus tells a story. The crowd start identifying, oh, an evil king. He's going to inherit a kingdom. This story typical of many others, have some exaggerations in. We're not meant to analyse them and say, "Mm, in what ways, if this is about Jesus, is he harsh? What does that mean? We're missing the point. The people being killed at the end, what does that say? If this story is about Jesus, who's getting killed here? It's not very nice. We're missing the point. It's the overall points that Jesus wants to convey. And stories would often do that with added drama and added exaggeration with me okay because that's really important it helps you with the story because as I looked in some of the commentaries they're trying to work out I wonder which one of the servants hid the clock was that Judas you think you're missing the point Jesus isn't saying anything about his disciples he doesn't really want us to work out which one of the servants is which he's not even bothered about which is the kingdom that's going to be inherited the story is about a king and the story is about faithfulness of his subjects and unfaithfulness is others So the story is making the point that a king was not received completely by all his subjects. Some of them he charged with responsibility. That's the money. When he returns, he rewards faithfulness. This isn't a story about capitalism and how to make a fast buck with your your investment. It's about faithfulness. It's about recognizing the king and his authority. And the king punishes those who are passive, those who have done nothing, and those who are unfaithful. Some people have accepted the king's rule, others haven't. For those who reject the coming king, there is severe judgment. That's the story. Those are the points Jesus is wanting to make. (coughs) That those who receive him are faithful in following him, are faithful in following his instructions, that gets rewarded. What's the reward? Do we get rewards in heaven? Why do some people get ten cities, five cities? Ready? I don't know. That's not the point of the story. Actually, if you follow Scripture through and follow other stories, reward is salvation. That's clear. The reward is eternal life with God, with him on the new heavens and the new earth. That's the reward. Now, there are other teachings, other things which seem to suggest there are uh, other rewards as well. But that's not what Jesus is trying to teach here. Jesus is trying to teach faithfulness, and faithfulness will be rewarded. And reward is salvation. Receive the king, be faithful, and you will be rewarded. If you don't, there is judgment. And as we saw last time, more specifically in AD 70, all of Jerusalem was overthrown. So there's an immediate judgment Jesus sees coming, as well as the end judgment. Jesus is referring to himself and to God's kingdom. It has come, but not in the way they're expecting. And Jesus knows they will reject him. And some of them will face judgment. That's what makes the story even more powerful. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he knows what's coming. And then what makes it even more remarkable is that Jesus himself enters into the story and it's him who is killed. And it's him who takes judgment. And it's him who stands in our place and the place of all mankind who have not received the king 
who have not been faithful to him, who have not followed him despite all the revelation that there is and all the prophets he sent and the law and everything else. Jesus, remarkably, having said judgment will come, steps right into this story and says the king will be the one who takes the judgment. When you understand that, the story becomes even more powerful and even more remarkable. But still, many reject him. And again, as I said, we saw all of this when we looked at the other story in Luke 17. So why is Jesus repeatedly making the same point? There's this story, there's what we looked at in Luke 17, there's other stories in this gospel and other gospels. He tells a story about someone owning a vineyard and sending people to see what's happening in the vineyard and eventually he sends his son and the son gets killed. Repeatedly, Jesus makes the same point again and again. This story, some of us know, is the parable of the talents because in another account, Jesus tells it that way. And we need to understand that Jesus would have told this story more than once. Again, scholars will look to, oh, this contradicts the other story. No, you tell stories more than once and to different audiences. And you do it again and again to make your point. Why does Jesus repeatedly make his point? Because they were missing what God's plan of salvation is. They were missing what God had spoken about for centuries before. They were missing their role, Israel's role in it. See, the big story, going back to what we looked at last year and into this year in terms of the overview of the Bible, the big story is God is rescuing the world. God is rescuing people from sin, selfishness, wickedness, injustice, and oppression. And the plan had always been to do it through his people, through Israel. Back at the beginning of the story, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, Israel, and that through him, through this nation, all peoples on earth would be blessed. Remember the promise? That's what Israel were to be, a blessing to the nations. God was going to rescue them, make a covenant with them, give them the law, say, look, this is how you live as people for God, a holy God. This is how you worship him. This is how you deal with sin and evil. That's what all the law is about. And I want you to make this known to the Gentiles, the rest of the earth, so they can be rescued. That's the big story. That was what Israel were called for, set apart for. That's why God set his love on them. But they forgot their purpose. They, in the end, thought they were the center they were the blessed ones. It was an exclusive thing. They were the ones with the law. And the Gentiles, all other peoples, that's what Gentiles means, were condemned because they didn't have the law. And it became an exclusive. It became about them. We're the blessed ones. We're the chosen ones. We have the law. And in fact, in the temple, there were different courts you could go through. And on one of those courts, the other courts, they said, if a Gentile comes beyond this point, they'll be stoned. That's why a bit later we'll see Jesus adjusting that somewhat when he goes into the temple and gets angry because Israel had taken the promises and instead of making them a blessing had made them about them (coughs) and now the one who is going to fulfill the promise to Abraham is among them the one whom the whole world will get to be blessed The one whom, through his death and resurrection, the whole world can know forgiveness. The one who will be the lamb, so there'll be no more sacrifices. He is among them, and they don't recognize him. And they reject him. They are missing it. Paul puts it like this much later, when he's trying to get people still to understand this point. We can put that slide up in Romans 3. 
Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul is saying everything that happened before, everything Moses brought, all those prophets, they all point to this. They all point to Jesus coming. It was hard to see it fully at the time, but when Jesus came and started talking about these prophets being fulfilled, and started healing the sick, and started talking about the kingdom. That's what was going on. There's a new righteousness. It's not about the law anymore. It's about him. That's what Paul is saying. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to all who believe. That's Paul's take on it, years later. And the reason why Jesus repeatedly tells these stories, some of them shocking, it's urgent. He wants to get their attention. Everything you've waited for, everything you've believed for, every time you've gone to the temple and sacrificed, it all points to me and I'm here and you're missing it. That's why Jesus repeatedly says it. So, check the time. Hmm. What's this got to say to us today then? Jesus has come, died on the cross, risen, Holy Spirit poured out. We're in a different time in the story. We're at a different point now. What's this got to say to us today? Especially after the news we've had this week. People worshipping in a church in the States. Someone comes in, shoots them. People on holiday, on the beach, get shot and killed. Laws getting passed, which seemingly are redefining marriage, something which God instituted. (coughs) Another attack on another mosque. And those are just the stories that made the news. I can tell you of other stories through the work that I do that never make the news. What has this got to say to us then? It's great having the story explained. I hope it's helped you. Hope you understand now how to read a story like this and can remember some of those points about how Jesus is teaching. Well, I think we can be in danger of the same mistake that Israel were making for different reasons, different circumstances, living at a different time and in a different culture. There can be a real danger for the church today, particularly the charismatic church, where we love the presence of God. We come not simply to sing songs and have a meeting, but to meet with him and to know him. I think there is a danger that we can end up making the kingdom about us and we're the ones who get blessed. (coughs) Making the church a place where we get to receive blessing through encountering God's presence, encountering his love. Our needs get met. Friendships get strengthened. If we've had a tough week, we can receive comfort and we can know peace. If things are difficult at home or work, then we can expect to know God's blessing in that and hope we get prayed for or the teaching helps us and then we can go and get through another week. It's not unlike what Jonathan was saying when it comes to sins forgiven, that that can happen here. No grace. Get off, got what use. Was our sin bucket empty <laughs> and go away again, have another week and come back. Similar again, but Jesus thought this was urgent. And he said it again and again. So I feel okay saying it again and again. And some of what I'm touching on, I I hear Adrian last week at the One Together uh, also touched on some of this in terms of our identity and what we're called to do. Jesus does give us comfort. The Holy Spirit is described as an encourager, one who will come alongside. Jesus' death on the cross 
was to give us access to knowing the presence of our Father. No more barriers. The curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies was torn in two so we could know him, not simply in a meeting or a special place, but in the office or the classroom or at home. Glory. Which is, the, I know it's a jargon word, but it's the best word I can think of. There's no other word to use. That's what we've been rescued for so we can know him. But if it finishes there, as someone said at the festival we were at recently, the numbers of our churches got together, the danger that we can turn church into a reservoir where we store everything rather than a river which transforms the world. See, the story isn't only about us being blessed or even made whole and healed and strengthened before Jesus returns. Some of that will only happen when he gets back. You'll only be fully healed. No complete wholeness. No complete healing from anything you have been through, everything you have been through when Jesus comes back. It's about the kingdom coming now and then coming more fully. That doesn't mean we don't pray for it, look for it. That doesn't mean God hasn't got love and comfort for emotional scarring and abusive hurts. No, there is. But sometimes we can be focusing on that, my healing, what God's got for me, or who I am, more than understanding there are people who've never even heard, tasted, sampled, have any idea of the blessing that you and I feel week by week. The story, the big story is about the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. All peoples in all places knowing there is a saviour. That's the story. And Israel had a massive part to play in it. And the church, God's people now, have a massive part to play in it. That's why you're here. That's why Jesus rescued you. That's why his mercy and love has flooded into you. Because those stories we hear on the news, it's not time to retreat. It's not time to think, gosh, the world is scary. It's always been scary. There's always been death. Death will not be overcome until Jesus comes back. And if there's anything, the enemy who's behind so much of what's going on wants to happen is for the church to retreat and say, goodness, let's just spend time worshipping and praying and hope Jesus gets back quick. No. We are the ones chosen by God, not because we're special, but because he set his love and mercy on us to be the ones that like light shine in the darkness. That like light say there's a different way to live. There's a saviour. There is mercy. There is grace. Evil can be overcome. Peace can be known. In part now, fully when he comes, the role of the church at this time is to be, as Jesus said, a city on a hill. It's to be those who point, those who show, those who don't only sit and receive, but those who take what they've received to your office, classroom, workplace, home. That's our destiny That's what we've been called for. That's our identity. That's what the New Testament writes about again and again. The danger is we can stop halfway in, if you like, and do the receiving bit in all its wonder and glory and receive comfort and peace. Oh, it's beautiful. If you need that this morning, when we're worshipping, the Holy Spirit will come to you and strengthen you. Don't hold back on that. Don't you dare misunderstand me and think, oh, Andy Martin doesn't think I should do this. Wrong answer. Go to the back. Oh, if you're hurting. If things at the moment are overwhelming, oh, Jesus knows that and he's got comfort for you. But if it just stops there, you're missing why he comforts you. So you can comfort others. So you can have strength and peace and compassion and mercy to speak to people who are scared to go on holiday now. 
or who are scared at what they're facing in their family or at home. See, our, our culture makes this even more difficult for us. Our culture squeezes us into its mold, consumerism. Everything we buy, everything we accumulate, this is how we're supposed to live, this product. I've said this before, others have. The danger, well, the church becomes another product. The worship style, who's leading worship, what kind of songs we sing, what kind of preaching, the friendship, the welcome, how culturally relevant we are, how long the meeting is, becomes another product, becomes another thing because we become the center and it's about is it meeting my needs, consumerism, and the church becomes that and leaders end up trying to make that happen and you end up feeling you've had a good Sunday if those things have happened. It ain't about us, it's about him and his name and his glory. Of course, that doesn't mean there aren't things that we should be doing and all of that. But the culture can squeeze us in a way that before we know where we are, just to be controversial, we put the names of worship leaders on our conference promos. It's irrelevant. Why does it matter who's leading worship? Now, worship leaders, I honor you, every single one of you. You work so hard and have amazing gifts that help me and us know the presence of God. Keep going, every increase to you. But it's not about the who or who's at the front. It's about him. But we get squeezed into the mold. Individualism, another one. Our rights, my security, what makes me feel better, the later experience, latest experiences. Have you done this, seen this, watched that? It's about our happiness, about our security, about everything being done for us. That's how the Western world works now, about the individual and their rights and their peace and their happiness. All of this can combine to make a powerful combination that ends up with most of us feeling inadequate half the time. Because all our friends are tweeting or updating their statuses on their latest good thing or their latest experience or their latest product or what they're going through. And in the end, we turn up on a Sunday feeling pretty rubbish anyway. Why? Because the world's told us we are. Because we're focusing on ourselves, because that's what the world tells us to do. We're focusing on others and seeing how much better they are. We don't feel we've done a great... <coughs> day's work or but done well at work because our bosses never tell us and anyway we feel we've not worked hard enough and the whole thing of our consumerist individualistic rights driven culture can end up making us feel rubbish because we feel inadequate and social media is comparing us to everybody does this make some sense and we can feel unloved and then our broken community and families mean many of us are which is why the gospel is so powerful for us but if every week all we're doing is coming to feel better, if every week all we're doing is coming to know the love of God, we've just become like the world. It's just another product. Oh, I hope it's good at West today. I hope Andy's on form or Jonathan's on form. Oh, I hope the worship is good. I've had such a rubbish week. Oh, Jesus, I just need to know your love. Yes, you do. Because the world sucks it out of you. But if that's only where you land, we forget who we are. You're loved. Oh, you're dearly, dearly loved. But it's in order to love a broken world. It's in order that they can see people who are being made whole because they're loved. And they can say, hang on, where does that come from? Where do you get that? How are you living different? How are you knowing courage when the news stories this morning freaked me out? That's what this is for. That's what that is to do in us. <clears throat> We're in danger of ending up with a gospel that points to God and what he has done, leaving us blessed, comfortable, and passive. 
not unlike what had happened to Israel. And Jesus is shouting, don't miss it. See, everything that God brings us, everything the gospel brings us, all that I've said above is true and for us. It's just not the whole story. And if we stop at some of those things, we're in danger of missing our part, in danger of missing our true identity. The fresh emphasis today on the work of the Holy Spirit and how he brings intimacy with God, how he helps us know our Father, is wonderful. The importance of knowing our identity as sons and daughters of God, deeply loved, is life-changing. Really life-changing. God is restoring these truths to a broken generation that desperately need them. Intimacy with a Father who loves us unconditionally. Knowing our identity as sons and daughters. Feeling his love, not just a theological statement in our head. God is restoring these truths. But what we absolutely must see restored is the power of the Holy Spirit for courage in proclaiming Jesus and his love, mercy, and coming judgment if he's rejected. Because that's what we see in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and they're up on their feet, out of a room they were locked in for their safety, proclaiming Jesus is risen, death has been conquered, and if you don't take the message, judgment will come. You see it again and again in the book of Acts. (coughs) When the Holy Spirit falls, they don't organize more receiving times. They don't organize more prayer times. They're out with revelation and courage, knowing they've got the message of rescue that the world desperately needs. Yes, let's make sure we have times where we encounter and can dwell in his presence, where we do receive healing, discipling others in knowing the inheritance of Jesus has won for them as sons and daughters. But let's cry out desperately. I've felt this for years and feel convicted that I'm still feeling it because I've not done it enough. Jesus, I love the intimacy your spirit brings. I love knowing my Father in heaven, at times being overwhelmed by that love. It's beautiful. But I want to know some of that New Testament power. So instead of being intimidated by the culture, instead of feeling I've got nothing to say, instead of feeling people will laugh, instead of feeling people will say I'm 200 years out of date, I have the fire of the Spirit in me to preach about a Jesus, to love people who are broken, to show compassion. Why? Because I've got the strategy right. Why? Because I've had training. Those things help. No, because I've, I've received the Spirit from heaven that helps me live in my identity as a proclaimer of the truth. That's what I think the church can be in danger of losing. With our global news and seemingly increasing anti-Christian culture, now isn't the time to retreat or to emphasize only one part of the Spirit's work over the other. We need to recover the revelation that the Holy Spirit has come to help us fulfill our identity as witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. The latest post on Facebook or celebrity gossip is not the urgent news. Neither is the latest technological toy, video game, or box office blockbuster. None of these are urgent news. Our culture will tell us they are. They're not. In fact, these things numb us to the urgent news. These things suck life out of us. And please don't go home and start deleting Facebook. That's not my point. (laughs) I'm happy if you do, but that's not my point. There's nothing wrong with Facebook, social media, and all of that. And yes, I know some of it does good. Although just liking someone's status about a justice issue is not activism. Right, back in line, losing the time. 
These things make us numb to the urgent news. These things can dull our senses. The latest products, the latest things you need, the latest experiences can suck life out of our spirits to the urgency of the time in which we live. The latest, biggest, most urgent news is this. Jesus Christ has risen and conquered death and salvation and love and mercy are available. That's the latest news. That's the urgent news. And the church, us, you, me, we're the messengers, we're the carriers. That's who we are. That's why God's got you here in this church. That's why God wants to pour his love into your hearts, rescuing you from every hurt and pain, bring comfort to your soul in order that you can say, there is a saviour. His name is Jesus. I've encountered him. I know him and you can know him too. Let me introduce you to some friends I met last week as we head for a finish. Can we put the slide up? Uh, It's a little bit light to see, but three refugees from Iran. The guy in the middle, thanks James, the guy in the middle is Daniel. Uh, His family came to faith a couple of generations ago uh, from a Muslim background when his grandmother, living in a remote village, found a leaflet that she couldn't read, she didn't read, but it was in Farsi and it was about Jesus who heals. She took that back, Daniel's great-grandfather, Daniel's uh, father, sorry, grandfather, did read, he read it, he was really taken with this. A little time later, he was sick, had a serious illness in his legs, went to a hospital in the city, met a Christian doctor, prayed for him, healed instantly. Went back to his village, called the elders, the Muslim elders together, and said, I don't believe in Allah, I don't believe in Muhammad anymore as the prophet, I believe in Jesus, I'm now Christian. And from that his family believed. And Daniel was a worship leader in a huge church in Tehran and has now had to flee because of the persecution that's happening. But his story came to, his story is remarkable how he came to faith. The guy on the right, Mustafa, uh, he got engaged in Iran. It's wonderful. So happy, announced his engagement the next day, thrown in prison for being in a house church. Ages before he could get out and get married. The guy on the left, I'm running out of time, but the heat, in prison for being in a house church for worshipping. Uh, not allowed to be there. The authorities eventually found him. He's got stories of mistreatment, stories of being sick, going on hunger strike. But the story I want to tell you is he was desperate for a Bible, hunger for God's Word. How many of us have got more than one Bible? Come on, we all haven't we? We can have a book, we can download it, we've got loads. He was desperate in prison for a Bible. He said to the authorities, look, all the Muslims have a Quran, why can't I have a Bible? Please will you give me one? The authorities said, well, if you paint the big hall... The big kind of gathering hall will get you one. So he painted it, took him 10 days on his own. And then the authorities said, no, sorry, kind of a Bible. Every day they were allowed a phone call home. So all the believers in the prison used their phone call to ring family and say, read me Matthew chapter 1. Phone down next day. Okay, let's do verse 6. By the time they finished, they did most of the New Testament. They then did the Old Testament. But he's telling me that Bible's complete now and is still hidden in prison. We need our perspective adjusting. We need Jesus to wake us up sometimes. We need Jesus to say it's urgent. And the things you thought were important when you came in here probably are not as important as you really think they are. So how do we live then? I've got to finish. All I've done is made you feel condemned. If you're feeling convicted... Repent. I'm serious. 
The hour's urgent. If you know you're filling your life with stuff which really isn't the same as making Jesus number one, just repent. There is no condemnation or heaviness this morning. We can't all live like that. It's part of what happens is our culture makes us numb. God knows that. He knows what things make your world difficult. He knows what pressures you feel. And he wants to help and come to you in those. So don't feel condemned. Let these stories open your eyes a bit and understand some of how, how rich we are and what God has given us. So if there is guilt, if there is conviction, if you know you need to make adjustments in your life, then repent. Let's start making some correct choices in our time and what we give ourselves to. Prayer should be a, a lot bigger feature than social media. Finding out about people like this, finding out what God's doing in the world. There's plenty of resources out there. I can help you with that. Most of you know where to go. Or pray for our nation. Pray. That's what our part of what our identity should be in terms of wanting to see the kingdom come where you live and where you work. Drink deeply of the Holy Spirit now in all that he gives you, in love, in comfort, in peace. Receive it, but thirst for power, thirst for courage, thirst for the Holy Spirit to enable you to speak more, love more, proclaim more. Thirst for us as a church to know that kind of power where there is such, amen, where there is such fire in us that going to work, you don't feel so intimidated because you know his presence. Oh, when we're here, encounter his presence, know it, long for it, enjoy it when we worship in a minute, but then learn, and I say this to myself too, learn to know that down the high street because he doesn't go anywhere. Learn to know that in the office. Learn to know that in your front room, bringing up your kids and three o'clock in the morning and all of that. Thirst for it, long for it. So I'm not saying back off from that. I'm saying let's have more, but not just in here. Let's have it elsewhere.